lately, I've been starting these podcasts with what is known in the biz as a cold opening. This time, however, it is illegitimate. It is a literal cold opening because I am suffering from a cold, as you may be able to tell. One of my favorite podcasts from days gone by was called Hardcore History. It starred a guy named Dan Carlin. I always thought, man, if I was really smart, I would sound like Dan Carlin. But now it turns out that all I have to do is be really sick to sound like Dan Carlin. Anyway, <laughs> I've got a cold. It's wet and gray and yucky outside my window here in Cincinnati. And that is because it is the holiday season. And as you know, I am always gleeful and joyful in the holiday season. <laughs> I'm working on it. And that voice you hear in the background, that is somebody who, is, who helps me to work on it. And that's John Wright. John, welcome to the show. Thank you. And you'll hear my wheeze as well. I have a cold as well. We, so we're cold buddies this oh, week. Oh, look at that. Look at yeah. that. Yeah. Every time I laugh, it sounds like a wheeze. Even down there in like dry heat of Phoenix, you can still get a cold. Yeah, the weather's beautiful, but the uh, cold is real. All right. I'm not even going to pretend that this episode <laughs> hasn't been sort of scripted out in advance. This is not spontaneous here. There may be some spontaneous moments in it, but... You know what you want to say. I've got something to say. I actually wrote out the first little part of it. I'll read it to you and you see what you think. Perfect. Are you ready? All right, yeah. so here it goes. What I want to say is that the holiday season is always difficult for some people. But this year, more of us than usual feel discouraged. We're worried about global problems like climate change, the rising power of artificial intelligence, and Russia's war on Ukraine. We're appalled and confused by the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And in my case, we are also super sad. And we are utterly overmatched, or at least we feel utterly overmatched, against our smartphones and social media apps. And I just know so many people that are like, yeah, I know I need to get off. I can't do anything. And that, you know, that's everybody. You know, that's, that's our friends in Australia. That's people listening in Singapore. Like, we have listeners all over the place. But here in the United States, those of us that live here, there's an additional misery, which maybe is the misery of a lot of the rest of the free world, too. And that is that we're entering into what is shaping up to be the worst of all possible election years. Uh, I was reading, uh, my parents every year, they subscribe me to something called the New York Review of Books, which is where I, I find all the books I think would be good to read. There was an essay in there by civil rights lawyer, Sherilyn Eiffel, um, which I thought put it pretty well uh, in the first few lines, at least. She says, we don't have the luxury of niceties and illusions. I think she means we Americans don't have the luxury of niceties and illusions. We are being driven to face hard truths about our republic, about our political system, about our neighbors, our safety, our understanding of who we are, about our past and our future. We are, as a country, in a moment of existential crisis a battle for our identity. As I have said often over the past two years, there is no guarantee that we will make it out of this crisis as a democracy. I don't know about you, John, but like, this is the first time I've ever really felt that way. I mean, even when Trump got elected the first time, I thought there were all these guardrails. You know, I'm like, yeah, he's a nut job, but like, our system is such that it will contain him. Mm -hmm. But, our system has changed, like the gerrymandering, all the weird stuff that's going on, like the things he's saying about if he gets reelected. I find myself thinking like, you know, we could end up not a democracy. It's never occurred to me like, what would it be like to live like in a autocracy or in a fascist dictatorship or in a, you know, in a military state? Like there are other kinds of countries in the world, like in a failed state, you know, <laughs> in a civil mm -hmm. war, you know, there are all these other realities. And I go like, yeah, I know those exist around the world. It's never occurred to me that I might live in anything other than a democracy. Right, right. You know, I talk to a lot of people from very varied backgrounds and I hear this more often 
than I would expect where people are genuinely, they're genuinely feeling like this might not go the right way. Right. And I don't just mean this election, but like that we as a nation might tip towards a place where whoever gets power rigs it so that they cannot have that power taken away from them. Mm -hmm. And that's weird. It's very weird. And so I know that I'm typically more gloomy than you are. I'm sort of not just reading myself. I'm not actually that gloomy right now. Like I'm, I'm not as bad as I've been at other times in my life in terms mm -hmm. of my sense of catastrophe. But boy, when I talk to people, it feels like I'm sensing an atmosphere. Not, this is not so much my read. It's just I'm sensing an atmosphere where people are like really, really messed up over Israel-Palestine and uh, the war in Ukraine, which seems so important a year ago. And now it feels like we're just about like, yeah, well, you know, right, we tried. Right. And, you know, allowing Russia to take it over. And it's funny, like, I don't listen to Nikki Haley that much. Although, you know, many of us are placing great hope in her <laughs> to weaken the Trump candidacy. But, but she said something. She said, listen, you need to understand that if we let Russia win in Ukraine, that is not just a win for Russia. That is a win for China, who has become their great ally in this kind of struggle. And that's really dangerous for the world to sort of say like, yeah, you can just, if you're more powerful, you can just take over another country. Mm -hmm. Right. And no one will do anything about it or no one will do anything about it for very long. Like they'll lose interest. Yeah. So it's, it's about the structure of the free world. Yeah. Yeah. You know, anyway, so I, I just have a lot of people saying like, I'm just really... You know, and that's, and, and then you get into like the cell phones and the smartphones and the depression and AI, which is this kind of weird existential risk that nobody really understands. But like that whole thing with CEO of open AI getting fired and then rehired has sort of people convinced like, yeah, they're going to do whatever they want to do with AI. There's not much the rest of us can do about it. Right. Except get our term papers written by chat GPT. <laughs> so like I sense a lot of angst in the world. There's angst in the ether. Angst in the ether, yeah. What I want to do is not add to it. You know, if, if you made it this far in the podcast, like that's the end of doom and gloom for me. What I want to do is I want to talk about what do you do? What do you do in that situation? And it feels to me like, especially if you are a secular person, if you are not a believer in Jesus coming back with the cavalry to save the world. If you don't think there's anyone coming to rescue us, you know, what do you do? And for that, my sense is, is that our best move is to swing to the Stoics. Yeah. One of the main Stoic philosophers, Epictetus, you know, who was a slave for most of his life until he later gained his freedom. His kind of classic Stoic formulation is, we cannot control the external events around us, but we can control our reactions to them. Right. And that's kind of the distillation of Stoic thought. Definitely, yeah. It's a very, it's a very powerful thought, actually. And I feel like maybe now is a time where we say to people who are saying, I'm so worried about AI. And you sort of go like, do you have any control over the development of AI? And they're like, no, none whatsoever. <laughs> and you're like, okay. Then let's talk about how you respond to the growing power of AI. Not, what do we do about AI? You're not going to do anything about AI. What you can control is your internal reaction and your attitude and, to some degree, how you respond within the context of your own sphere of influence. Right. Like there are right. things you can control and there are things you can't. Well, I'm beginning to sense where the title of this podcast episode may have come from, doing the next right thing. You are. And, and I got to tell you, like, I will explain later in the podcast where I actually got that title. Mm -hmm. But when I looked it up, because I, I got it from listening to a podcast called Invisibilia 
that I will share. And I will share the story of that podcast. A particular episode of Invisibility? Yes, yes. Okay. Okay. And so I got it from there. But then when I I looked it up, um, there were two main things. One is the corner of the phrase, at least on the internet, which it turns out she stole it from a poem, but was Elizabeth Elliot, which for all the ex-evangelicals in our audience, there's a big groan. Like, oh, geez. (laughs) Not Elizabeth Elliot again. (laughs) Elizabeth and Jim Elliot were these missionaries. I thought I left them behind. I know. And they drove me crazy even when I believed in God. I couldn't stand them. (laughs) You know, because they they went to, was it Africa? Someplace in Africa? South America? That's right. Yeah, they were missionaries, weren't they? Yeah, among some tribe, right? And, and, And as they were bringing Jesus to these primitive people, they killed her husband. Right. And that's right. That's right. And he had a famous quote. His quote was, he is no fool who exchanges that which he cannot keep for that which he cannot lose, which was like, you know, give your life to Jesus because like you can't keep it anyway. And, you know, Mm -hmm. then you'll have eternal life Mm -hmm. with God. So that was a quote that, man, you know, that was on some t shirts I knew. (laughs) But Elizabeth Elliot, she, quoted this old Elizabethan poem that was all about like, because you trust in God, just do the next thing, do the next right thing. And that was her big quote, do the next right thing. But the good news is, is that, and and, and I don't know why I'm so freaky about that, because it's a wonderful, wonderful line. You know, in so many situations, that's, that's the way out. Yeah, it's kind of because of where it came from, right? It's like, oh, I, I can't, <laughs> I can't. Which feel I don't good know why that, that shouldn't bother me. You go like, well, it came from a Christian. I go like, so did I. So <laughs> right. did half the like every good thing about me was shaped by Christians. Why do I think that if a Christian touched it, that contaminates it? Right, right. <laughs> you know, like, like in a sense, it's like just because something's in the Bible doesn't mean it's not true. There's a lot of true stuff in the Bible. Right. Yeah, like, like just the notion, like a man reaps what he shows, or, you know, a person reaps what they sow. You're like, that's true. You know, you plant corn, you're probably going to get corn. Plant apples, you'll get an apple tree. And if you're like mean and bitchy and horrible and terrible to people, you know, probably you will reap people that don't like you. <laughs> right. So, so like just because something in the Bible doesn't mean it's not true. And just because Elizabeth Elliot said it doesn't mean it's not incredibly wise. But why couldn't it have been? Carl Sagan. <laughs> right. Well, Listen, hey, Carl Sagan has plenty of his own, so. Hey, but here's the good news, is yeah. that there was a U2 concert album where at one point they were singing the song Helter Skelter, and they said, Charles Manson stole this song from the Beatles, we're stealing it back. <laughs> do you remember that line? Yeah. I love that. I and especially so, like your accent when you do that. Yeah, I, I have terrible accent. That was um, good, that was good. Elizabeth Elliot. Stole this top of the morning to <laughs> stole this line from an Elizabethan poet who was also a serious Christian. So, and, right. and, and but guess who stole it back? Not me. Uh, I, I know what you're going to say. Disney. Disney stole it back. Disney stole it back. That's right. Because if you have watched the film Frozen Two, which I trust you have, have you? I've only watched this particular clip. That's because you have no grandchildren. That's right. (laughs) But if you had watched Frozen 2, there is a song literally called Do the Next Right Thing. And it is beautiful. It it is. is. And I I don't, you know, I have no connection to Frozen or Frozen 2 or anything like that. I just watched this, though, before we came on at your prompting. Kristen Bell, right? Yeah. The Next Right Thing. And uh, you can go on, on YouTube and watch it. It's, you know, uh, my reaction, Bart, was that it's actually an important, it seems like it's an, an important song. The the fourth comment down on the YouTube version that I saw is by just some random YouTuber saying, quote, this song is literally how to overcome depression caused by trauma and loss. Like it's literally yeah, about yeah. moving on. It's It seems to me like it might be important for people to watch. I, th- I think it's really valuable. I mean, when we, I th- we're going to make a bunch of e- recommendations at the end of this show 
um, a bunch of like podcasts and other kinds of recommendations. And, and this will be in the list. And I can't emphasize enough that, you know, when you want to talk about a simplified version of what do you do when you are overwhelmed by grief or in the case of like the American election year or climate change or the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, when you just feel like events are spiraling out of your control and there's nothing you can do. Yeah. There's great wisdom in this idea of do the next right thing that's within your control. You know, that's the stoic saying, listen, you know, focus on what's within your control. Yeah. It's such a valuable idea. And so I, I guess the question that I want to just stop for a second on mm-hmm. before we get to our recommendation list is to go like, I think it's really important to, to say like, what is within your control? You know, I, I mean, I, I have another Viktor Frankl quote, if you, if you want it. At one point he says, everything can be taken from a person, but one thing, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances. I, I, I have mixed feelings about that quote. You know, I mean, on the one hand, I do think it's a useful idea. I, it may, may not be a, a straight line to choosing your next attitude. What do you think about that? Choosing your attitude doesn't seem like it's directly in my control. I can choose what I do, but I'm not sure I can choose the attitude that I have, at least not immediately. Maybe the things that I'm doing can lead to a better attitude. I guess it depends on how you define the word attitude. Right. And in this, I am greatly helped by my experience building model airplanes as a young person. Oh, did you, did you do that? Yeah, because attitude is an aviation term on one level. That's and true. it has to do with the position of your wing relative to the oncoming air. Oh, you know, I, still, so like, I thought you were going to say relative to the ground. No. No. I mean, your, your plane has an attitude relative to the ground. But, but your wing, wing has an attitude relative to the onrushing wind. And so, you know, you've seen on an airplane the flaps that, you know, mm-hmm. when you're looking out the window of the airplane, you see them, the flaps going up and down. Yeah. Before you take off, they're sort of testing them. Because depending on the attitude, the plane goes up or it goes down. Mm-hmm. And so if you're thinking by attitude, you can change your feelings. You know, I don't think we have much control over our feelings. No, not direct control. Not direct direct. control. Yeah, you have indirect control. But you can change the way you approach a situation. And you can decide, again, like you can decide, like I'm going to get up, walk out the door of this house and walk around the block. And you're like, oh, do you feel like it? And they're like, no, I have no control how I feel. But like, I can control what I do with this feeling. And I, and right, like, right, I know right. that I don't want to walk around the block, but I know that there's a lot of research to suggest that if I walk around the block, I will feel different by the time I get back. Yeah. You're changing your perspective. So attitude, maybe approach would be, you know, what's your approach to a situation? You, you know, another how, aviation how, term. <laughs> yeah. You know, or, yeah. Just, or, or just, you know, to go back to like the stoves, what's your response? How are you going to respond to the situation? What are you going to do? Yeah, no, it's so true. Yeah. What's the next move? Like that next little thing that you do in response to whatever just happened. And so, you know, when we talk about our response, you know, the overwhelming sense that I have that the human race is not going to do what it needs to do to slow down climate change enough. Like Mm -hmm. we're not going to stop burning fossil fuel. We're not going to do that. And you're like, I don't feel like I can do a lot about that, mm-hmm. but it's almost like an election where I sense that everybody's going to vote for the one candidate, and I think that candidate is wrong, and so I can vote for the other candidate. You're like, but you won't win. I go, I know, but at least I'll know that I voted for the right candidate. I can do that. Yeah, I can vote differently. I can I can vote my conscience, you know. And it's funny. I remember when I was in the, in the Dominican Republic once, and there was an election going on. I remember I think the guy's name was Balaguer who was re- voting, and I asked somebody, I asked a person I was driving with who they were going to vote for, and they said they were going to vote for Balaguer. And I said, "But you've just gotten done telling me what a terrible and corrupt leader he is. Why are you going to vote for him?" And he goes, "He's going to win anyway, and I want to be on the winning team." Oh wow! And I think that's a crappy response. Yeah, it certainly is. (laughs) I think like one of the things you can do is you can, you may not be able to save the world, but you can save your soul 
You can save your integrity by doing what you think is right, you know, within, within limits, by doing what you think is right just for the hell of it. I also wouldn't overestimate your own knowledge of what you think is going to happen. You know, when you do the right thing, even if you think it won't make a difference, there's always the chance that it might make a difference. And so you have a double whammy there. Oh, that, there's great truth in what you just said. The one thing you can do is, like, you can literally vote. Mm-hmm. But I think also, like, we vote when we recycle. We vote when we switch over from a gas stove to something more efficient. You know, we vote when we ride a bicycle. When you, when you buy a car or, yeah. You know. You're making decisions all the time. And, and, and I think that, like, I go crazy sometimes because I don't want to spend my whole life trying to be righteous about everything. You're overwhelmed and, you, and you're paying attention to all this stuff. And then when you find out that, like, one corporate jet flight wipes out, you know, all the work that you've done mm-hmm. for five years, that your carbon footprint that you've reduced by, like, one iota that just one person deciding to take one extra corporate jet flight wrecks it. You go like, oh, it's all a waste of time. But I go like, don't think of it as like you're doing it because it's going to work. Do it because like it's the right thing to do or you're doing it because like who knows what might work. You know? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And at the yeah. very least, your consumption habits, by generation even, it's different. And so there are baselines there that corporations who are trying to do the right thing, which do exist, and other entities are using as a baseline to do things like carbon offsets and things like that. And so if, I don't know how many, a few thousand of us listening maybe to this, you know, you all do roughly the right thing, right? Roughly, most of the time, it slowly pushes that baseline in the right direction. Yeah. And I think about like the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I know a lot about because I spent a lot of time working there a number of years ago and I have friends there. That's right. That's right. You know. I feel powerless in that situation, but I know that a lot of my Jewish friends are hurting over the conflict itself and also over the anti-Semitism, which sort of Mm -hmm. is being expressed in a lot of weirdly weird ways in our country right now. Mm -hmm. And I know that a lot of my Muslim friends are also feeling horrible about what's happening and are being hit with Islamophobia everywhere. And I go like, I can send an email to Mark Oppenheimer and say, I know you're sad and I'm sad with you. you know. And I can send a note to my friend who was the Muslim chaplain at USC when I was there as the humanist chaplain and say, I'm really sorry. I know this is just a terrible moment for you. And you can express solidarity in emotion. Even you go like, I'm confused as hell about like the politics. And, and even that's a political statement to say like, I'm not exactly sure how to express myself I mean, because I, I know what I think, but I'm not really sure how to express it in the best way right now. Right. And you can get you can get flamed just for expressing something wrong. And you're like, but I can tell you that I'm sad. I just don't think you can be a human being and look at this thing very carefully and not be really sad. Yeah, there's something about human solidarity in a moment like this that's important, I think. Yeah. And, and and again, you know, like, are there some right things, you know, can you give some money to some places? Yeah, there are some things you can do. There are other things you can do. And I go like, you have to focus on what you can and can't control. Right. I think like there are things to figure out what we can control is important. But, you know, the other kind of response that I have is like, part of what is so painful in this moment is the burden of knowledge and the burden of worry that a lot of people are carrying. One other thing you can do is do your best to protect the children in your life from all this stuff. Yeah, the climate is changing. And I go like, buy sunscreen and put it on the kids and like try to protect them. You maybe can't do anything about the ozone layer being depleted by our consumption patterns, but you can do something about like putting some sunscreen on the kid. Like respond, do the best you can for the kid. Mm -hmm. And I think that when it comes to protecting kids, there's also protecting them from the knowledge some people are like, we need to let these kids know. We need to tell little kids about, about what's happening with the environment. I go like, maybe not the little, like, maybe when they get a little older, not the five-year-olds. Like, one of the best things about being f- five years old is the illusion that the adults know what they're doing. 
<laughs> I like how you put that, the illusion. Yeah. You know, what would you do if all of a sudden you knew that a meteor was going to hit the earth next week and we would all be wiped out? The question is, would I run over and, and, and try to explain to my five-year-old that we were all going to be dead in a week? I wouldn't. Right. I would protect her from that knowledge. I would want to play games with her. And I would say, if people were like out there in the streets protesting, I would be like, hey, let's go in the basement and watch a movie. Like, let's, mm-hmm. and, and you're like, but why? And you're like, because we have limited time. I can't control the fact that I know it. And I, I don't necessarily even want to. But like, it's too much for her to take in right now. And I think sometimes climate change is too much for a kid to take in right now. And some of these conflicts and wars are too much for a kid to take in right now. It's like sex. You know, people say like, you don't want to protect people. People should be aware. And I go, yeah, well, you know what? With sex, like sex is a great thing. It's a really positive thing. But like, it's too much for a five-year-old to take in. It's abusive if you sexualize a five-year-old or if you let them watch things that are too sexual. You're supposed to protect them because their brains aren't yet ready to handle that kind of information. And I think the idea that like the world is spinning out of control and even the Epicurean who goes like, hey, there are all these things outside of your control. I go like, yeah, but don't tell your five-year-old that. Don't tell your, don't tell your three-year-old that. Don't tell you, you know, and if you tell your seven-year-old, like try to keep it within some boundaries. Right. Don't let them think that like the adults don't know anything. Right, right. Even though we manifestly don't. We have no self-control as a, as a species. They don't need to know that. You don't let a 12-year-old drive a car. It's too much responsibility. Well, there's certain knowledge that is too much responsibility for somebody. Yeah. When I was raising my kids, that was the era of VeggieTales. Were you ever oh, exposed yeah. to VeggieTales, John? Only whenever I came to America as an adult. Then it was I a finally uniquely American what... phenomenon. It was. <laughs> um, and then I started to know like some of the songs and stuff like that. I was troubled by it even when I was a believer. I'm really troubled by it now because they would sing a song where like a kid was afraid and his, his parent was tucking him in. I was going to say his father or his mother, but it, like, it was a cucumber. And um, <laughs> and they would sing the song, God is bigger than the boogeyman. He's oh, bigger yeah. than Godzilla or the monsters on TV. God is bigger than the boogeyman and he's watching out for you and me. And the kid was like, oh, this is great. There's somebody, the biggest force in the world is protecting me and no harm will come to me. And then the kid would go to sleep and, and they were like, this is a great song to sing to your kids, you know, to tell them like nothing bad can happen. And I was like, I, that's not a good idea. <laughs> it's a good idea to, to not let a kid know how bad it is right away. Let that knowledge come gradually. That's my thought. Yeah. So, you know, I think you can control your response and you can try to protect your kids, which is in a sense, you're sort of like diverting their attention from one thing to another, distracting them, you know, making sure that they focus on things that are important for them and appropriate for them to be learning and experiencing now. Like it's okay to let them know, yeah, you know what? There are consequences to being mean to the kid next door. You can really hurt somebody. Like it's not that you protect them from all knowledge that things can go wrong. And I guess maybe that's the other part of our attitude that we can control is what we pay attention to. Definitely. So, you know, we've talked about this before, whether it comes to news and things like that. It's about taking in the right kinds of news, taking news that's more likely to be truthful, where people aren't just like randomly trying to tug your fear mechanism so that you'll keep scrolling down that we have to be careful about what we pay attention to in the media. But I think it's deeper than that. I keep pausing, John, because I know you have a feeling about this. Well, I don't know. I mean, to me, it's weird, Bart, because obviously it's everywhere now and it didn't used to be. You know, people used to read their newspapers first thing in the morning and that might be it. Some people, in my view, are not good candidates for daily news reading, you know? I do it without it giving me an overwhelming sense of dread or making me feel like the world is ending. Some people literally cannot do it without that happening. And it's worth pointing out, Bart, if you took the 20 biggest stories in any year of our lifetimes and focused on them, like really, really focused in on them as a current reality and read the analysis about them and how they can go... You could be convinced that things were so terrible that society was going to crumble any second. And yet here we are, you know, decades later. 
so I think the advice is the same as always. You know, it's about where your focus is on your relationships, your friendships, you know, the good kinds of consumption, which I think you have some recommendations along those lines, living life with intention, all of those kinds of things. And plus, I don't know how much you want to hear this, but there are lots of what I would consider to be good news stories. And I'm not talking about feel-good news. I'm talking about actual good news in there. But you kind of have to put aside your worries, you know, and, and negative objections to all of it, because of course, there's caveats with everything, right? But you know, the number one selling car in the world is all electric. This is actually really big. The Tesla Model Y is the biggest selling car in the world. Several years ago, it seemed like half the country didn't believe in renewable energy. And now every state has ambitious renewable projects. Some of the big goals in climate and energy are actually happening, and nobody seems to be talking about it. The war in Ukraine did not go the way everybody feared. You mentioned the war. Just to remind you, people thought it might be World War III. That did not happen, and it doesn't look poised to happen, even if there are still ongoing worries about it. In the meantime, the world is weaning itself off Russian fuel. The economy did not go the way people feared. It seems to me like a month or two away from a recession for like the last two years never materialized. The so-called, uh, I think they called it the soft landing. It's exactly what appears to have happened. This is very, very good news, right? You mentioned the ozone layer. You know, in the 80s, I remember, and I was a, a tiny kid, but that was in the headlines every day. Everybody was worried about the, the hole in the ozone layer. It was I know, the I, just biggest, dated, I dated myself by quoting <clears throat> it. Right. It, it was the biggest existential fear that people talked about, other than maybe nuclear war. I just read an article the other day that it's on track to make a full recovery within the next few decades. It's healing. Um, and you can look that up. It's a very interesting thing because it is a different kind of environmental crisis. And of course, we've just replaced it with a worse one, right, over the, over the decades, which, of course, the glass half empty, you know, response. But our air conditioners are better for the environment than they ever were. The pandemics has subsided, you know, COVID doesn't tend to kill people now. There are radical new Alzheimer's drugs in the news this year. There are radical new weight loss drugs. Weight can lead to a lot of other health issues. The first ever gene editing treatment for sickle cell. So anyway, this stuff goes on and on. And the only reason I mention it, Bart, is because I do think that a lot of these things are a matter of attention and perspective. And I think that we are as susceptible as a species to blind pessimism as we are to blind optimism. And also to like recency bias. Like what's the last story we focused on? And That's then, a good way to put it. Yeah. 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 And, and so, yeah, I, do, I don't mean to bang on about that. I just think it's kind of important little caveat to, yes, there's a lot of bad news. I think there are some ways that you can look at that bad news that would put it in a broader perspective. So I have a friend who I was talking to one day, and I asked her how, sh how she was, and she started going on about all these headline-making things, you know, the government and the wars and the world and all this stuff. And after she got done with a rant, I was like, so you're doing well, you know, <laughs> you know, I was like, I was joking. And she started cracking up and I realized, you know what? It has nothing to do with the state of the world. It was about several very difficult things that were going on in her own life. And the news was the thing that she kind of hung those feelings on, you know, at least she could blame how she was feeling on that. But, you know, if it would have been better, it would have been better if she'd have led by saying like, Hey, here's what's going on with me. Like, cause this is within my yes. control. You know, and then you could have addressed her and sort of tried to be helpful to her within her realm of actual influence rather than yes, having an esoteric conversation about world issues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, if, if her back pain hadn't been so bad and her, and her mom didn't have Alzheimer's and, and work had been easier, she wouldn't have been so focused on all, the, all these bad headlines. And I realized, Bart, that's all of us. You know, if I have money worries and I, I don't know how I'm going to make rent, I can't see the world positively because my world isn't what I want it to be, you know? Yeah. I have another friend who uh, who gets severe bouts of depression and you always know when he's in one because his Facebook profile will start to populate. I just thought of this this morning because I saw on Facebook he posted this video where he's recording the dog poop on the streets on his way to work. He's like walking to work 
and he's just like <laughs> videotaping the, the dog poop and i'm like look at this how terrible this is they won't even pick it up the you know the council is useless and all this stuff and i'm like he's depressed you know and so it does go back to the next right thing especially controlling what you pay attention to which i think can hurt or help us and i think that was the point you were trying to make i think attention's really important and 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 with that like Here's my first recommendation, and it flows directly out of this. Like, again, like it is this idea of like, do the next right thing, which is a really good advice for somebody who's grieving. Like, I remember a psychiatrist friend of mine when my daughter was in a very dark moment of her life saying, honey, you just need to walk around the block once a day. It'll restore your sense of agency. Right now, you feel like mm-hmm. you don't have control over anything in your life, and this is something you can control. And, and it was remarkably helpful to her. And she's a super high-functioning person, but she needed that reminder. And so do the next right thing is a super powerful thing. Mm-hmm. And I did not get it from the Disney song, and I did not get it from Elizabeth Elliot. I got it from this podcast, Invisibilia. And Invisibilia oh, yeah, is were, no longer you- even on the air anymore but you can still get the old episodes. And in Invisibilia, there is an episode called An Unlikely Superpower, okay? I'm writing it down. An Unlikely Superpower? I'll send you the link and you should put it in the show notes. Okay. Okay. An Unlikely Superpower. And it is about this woman, and I will not, you know, I'm terrible at sort of, what's the word, summarizing episodes, but it's basically about this woman who is married to a guy she just loves. And she talks about when we first met each other, how much they love each other and how much she loved not everything about him, including his smell. She was like, he just smelled like a man. Mm-hmm. And they had a wonderful marriage for about 10 or 12 years. And then he changed and he started to become very negative and very critical and very unhappy. And she said, the weirdest thing was, is he also stopped washing. He started to smell bad. And I'm sensitive to smell. And she said, I, I, I would say to him, you need to wash. You need to take a better shower. You just use soap. And he would say, I am, I am. But she said he smelled horrible. I knew he wasn't. Wow. And he had about 10 years where their marriage was really deteriorating and really sad. And she was very unhappy. And she was like, I married a different person. He's a different person than the person that I first married. And about 10 years into this very dark period, he got diagnosed for Parkinson's disease a neurodegenerative disease that was really messing with his, not just his body, but his personality. And as they tried to cope with this new news, they ended up in a Parkinson's support group. And when she goes into the Parkinson's support group, she's like, these people all smell horrible. And then she leaves the support group and she goes into the kitchen where they're preparing the food for the group. And these people smell fine. And she's like, oh, it's the people with Parkinson's that smell bad. She's like, I can smell Parkinson's. Wow. Well, she tells her husband and he's like, that's amazing. And she tries and, and they go to see some Parkinson's researcher and she says, I can smell Parkinson's. And he goes like, no, that's, it's, it's, in your, it's in your brain. It's in your, there's no smell to Parkinson's. And she's like, I can do it. And he doesn't believe her. And then later he reads some research, the scientist does, that makes him think, well, maybe, I don't know. And so he gets her back and he does a study with her where he takes 30 people and he has them wear a t-shirt for a day. Some of them have Parkinson's, some of them don't. And then he cuts the t-shirts in half and he has her smell different t-shirts. And not only does she sniff out all but one of the Parkinson's people, but she can match a t-shirt to another t-shirt. Her smell is better than anyone's smell they've ever seen. She's just precise. Wow. She's not surprised, but she's a little frustrated that she misses one. And uh, But they're like, this is still very significant. We're going to figure out what to do with this. And then the researcher calls her back a month later and says, the one you missed... That guy just got diagnosed for Parkinson's. You sensed it before any of our tests did. So it's like unbelievable. So she's she's not just able to detect it. She's able to detect it better than any other method. Yeah. And previously known. I mean, she basically knew that her husband's brain was starting to break down 10 years before they figured it out. The medical science figured it out. Mm. And that's why he'd been smelling bad to her all that time. And her husband and her, like her husband, strange enough, once he knows this, he becomes maniacally committed to her using this skill to like help them figure out stuff about Parkinson's. Like, and they're calling doctors and they're doing stuff. And like their relationship right before he dies is at its best because he suddenly has something that he's hopeful about. 
And, and he understands what's happening to him, but he also understands that there's something good that they can do. And so she's involved with all this research. So I thought that was a real, like, and, she, and, and it was interesting. She says, like, when people realized that she could sniff the future, that, like, if, if she smelled Parkinson's, she knew where you were going before you did. She said, when people found out she had that thing, she said their, their most frequent response was they would step, take a step away from her. <laughs> they didn't want her. They didn't want to know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm right. trying to think if, if I would want to know. I probably, I might not. Yeah. Nothing you can do about it. It's a little like climate change or AI. Nothing you mm -hmm. can do about it. So mm -hmm. painful to know, right? Yeah, yeah. But in the course of this, this process, she comes up with a protocol that says like, listen, I never tell anybody they have Parkinson's disease unless it's part of a clinical survey. Like I don't, I'm not just in a restaurant and I don't just look, look at the lady at the table next to me and say, hey, just so you know, you got a neurodegenerative disease and your, your brain's breaking down. That's not appropriate. But she says, in the context of her research, she meets this other woman who does have Parkinson's and she smells it on her. And the woman is crushed by the news that she has Parkinson's and she gets very depressed. And then this woman, this other woman, decides that if she's going to die, she has a bucket list of things she wants to do. And she starts taking dance classes and she starts volunteering at things. And she makes some new friends and she reaches out. She starts doing uh, some martial arts training and all this stuff. And when the women get together a few months later, the woman with the great smell says, I don't know what you're doing, but you should keep doing it. The smell is going away. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, this is working for you. This is helping you. Like, like in a sense, you still have Parkinson's, but you're extending, you know, like you're slowing it down by doing all these right things. And when they talk to the woman who's doing that, that's her line. She said, I just decided if I'm going to die and there's nothing I can do about it, I am just going to every day wake up and do the next right thing. Now, whether she saw Frozen 2 or <laughs> was a fan of Elizabeth Elliot's, I don't know. All I know is that was where I got the line, do the next right thing. Yeah. And the podcast is inspiring. I love that. It's inspiring about using what you have to do good in the world. It's inspiring about making the most of the time that you have, even if it's short, because frankly, for all of us, it is short, whether we know it or not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. So that's a podcast, okay? Invisibility. It's a great one. So that's a great An unlikely one. superpower. <laughs> You want so in a one? sense, in a, yeah, I do because in a sense, I'm I'm getting the impression here that you're saying like, if attention matters, here are some things you can do with it. I, I could recommend fifty things that I think are worthwhile. I only picked a few things, a handful of things that I thought like these all circle around the idea of do the next right thing. Love it. Okay. Yeah. And so another one is another old episode, a show called Radio Lab. I love and Radio Lab. The episode I'm recommending is called From Tree to Shining Tree. And it is basically about how a forest, we think of it as a bunch of individual trees, but underneath the surface, all the trees, roots, systems are connected to each other and they transfer energy and they, they share news. And like if there's a crisis at one end of the forest, the trees at the other end start to change the way that they are marshalling their energy and, and the thickness of the bark that they're building to fight the thing that basically a tree it, on one level is all these individual things and another level is one organism. A forest is one organism. And you don't have to go far to draw the analogies to make the connections between that and human beings and the connections between us and all living things. And it is just, it is just a miraculously wondrous episode about sort of these people figuring out like, oh my gosh, like there's a lot more going on here than we thought. And you go like, what are you talking about? And I go like, well, when you are overwhelmed by the world, even if you are overwhelmed by the fact that nature may be going away, I think that the next right thing to do is to get out there and put your hand in some dirt or is to watch an animal. Mm -hmm. Or is to take a walk and look at the trees or look at the clouds. Like nature is healing and the vastness of the universe is in some ways a comfort if you're worried that your little corner of the, inner, of the universe is going gonna, is gonna to wreck itself. You're like, you know what? Nature goes on. The same forces that generated this world, given an infinite amount of time, will probably generate some other world. 
and there will be more love and there will be more connection. It's good to remember, like sometimes it's really overwhelming to feel like you are small and nature is huge and nature goes on with, with or without you. But sometimes it's really wonderful to realize that nature goes on without us. Yeah, I, th- I think we- that's useful in a, in a visceral way. Like yeah. it, it affects you, you know, to the brainstem, right? <laughs> and it also, I think, in that rational way of like, you know, contemplating how rare it is to be standing, you know, any space story you ever see or any, you know, even the truth of the cosmos, it's extremely rare what we have, even in that rational way of walking around and just being part of that. Just going like, it's amazing. And you go like, but I'm living in a degraded world. It's not as good as it was 50 years ago. Like you are so lucky to have any consciousness at all. This is amazing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's like, yeah, it's good to be reminded what an amazing world we live in at the present. Like this yeah. present world, mm-hmm. really cool stuff. And, and and then if you turn yourself on the technology, like you said, in a positive way, you can go like, there are some really wonderful things. Like I can call my kid and see them on FaceTime them like in Star Trek, except we do it now in real life. Like it's amazing. Yeah. I think so, about that every time I talk to my folks back in Ireland. It's like the fact that I can talk to them for free forever, you know, for, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the point is like the forest floor, it is a real zoom you into a sense of wonder and zoom you into an understanding of connection that I think is really, really valuable. Excellent. Okay. And that leads me right to the next one. You have more. Uh, Yes, I have more. I have more. And I'm going to switch from podcasts, although I have another podcast, but I'm going to switch to an episode of a television show called The Last of Us. Did you watch the whole series, The Last of Us? Yeah, I loved it. I think yeah. it, and uh, there's not like this is going to be sequel, 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 you know, more and more series, I don't think, right? I hope not. I think it was a one and done. Yeah. Uh, the Last of Us was great. It's a post-apocalyptic landscape thing, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And post-apocalyptic landscape things, there's a lot of do the next right thing because there's nothing else to do. <laughs> um, so in the midst of this, but, you know, a lot of times do the next right thing is like survive, survive, survive. But three episodes into this thing, the third episode, of The Last of Us is this unbelievably beautiful episode. I don't want to spoil it for you, for anyone who hasn't seen it. But if you have seen it, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's the one with the guy from Parks and Recs. What's his name? The actor. Do you know the guy I'm talking about? Mm. It's about this guy who is surviving. Nick, Nick Offerman. Nick Offerman. He's out there surviving all by himself. He has survived the apocalypse. And he's fighting off the zombies or whatever they are. And, uh, and he's alone. And this person shows up. And basically the whole point of the episode, and this, and this is the most I'm going to say is, the whole point of the episode is, is that when you're sure that everything is going to shit, the most important thing you can do, the next right thing to do is to connect with somebody. The connecting is always the next right thing to do. And you think about it, John. You hear a story about a plane crash on a desert island somewhere, you know, like the, the alive, you know, remember the old, when the Uruguayan rugby team crashes in the Andes mountains, how do they survive? Oh, they form deep connections. Like they, they band together. I thought like you were going to say they eat each other. <laughs> well, they don't eat each other in meanness. When somebody's <laughs> dying, they say to the other no. ones, please eat my body. I want, I, I want you to live. Right, right. It's, it's a very beautiful thing that happens out there. And, you know, and when you think about like what happens in a snowstorm, which you wouldn't know being in Arizona, but like when there's a, a terrible snowstorm or there's a hurricane coming, people oftentimes will see a stranger in the street and they'll just, hey man, come on, come with, come into my house. Like, we'll help you. Yeah. When in crisis, oftentimes the next right thing to do is to connect. When somebody is grieving or when somebody is deeply depressed, one of the most dangerous things that depressed people do is they tend to isolate because they feel so bad and they just want to be alone. And yet the only thing that reliably pulls people out of those kinds of depressions and those kind of grief at moments is being with people. Yeah. And so... You know, so in a sense, you go like, what should I do when I'm really depressed? What should I do? I know, I know you don't want to hear it, but you, you got to connect. You got to try to connect. Yeah. And it's harder for people like, it's par- harder for people in that state of mind to do. Right. But it's still the next right thing. 
And this episode really like beautifully illustrates that. And I mean, the whole, the whole show is beautiful. And on some level, there's another connection between the central characters that is another, like the guy's like, I don't want to connect. I don't want to connect with anyone. I, I've been hurt. I've lost people. I don't want to connect. And in the end, the overriding theme of the show is listen, if you're not going to connect, you're not really going to live. Right. Uh, whether you're walking or not. 100%. So, so there's one. Okay. Yeah. Now, cutting back to podcasts. What about, you know, loss? I go like, there's an episode of a podcast called This Is Actually Happening that was recommended to me by my dear son, Roman, who often recommends good things to me. And this episode is entitled, What If You Witnessed a Thousand Deaths? And it's about a guy who works at a hospice. And he basically is with people when they're dying. And it's about the lessons that he learns about what matters and what doesn't and what to pay attention to and what not to pay attention to when the end is nigh. And so if you are depressed or discouraged, if you are, if you're feeling like things suck, there are things to learn. And basically what this guy goes like, let me tell you some things you can learn from people that are dying. And all the lessons are not happy lessons or uplifting lessons, but there are some beautiful moments and lessons in this podcast that this guy describes. And it's not an interview. It's just the guy talking. Like there is an interview, but they've edited out all the interviewer's questions. So you mm -hmm. just hear the guy reflecting on his life. It's remarkable. So good. I think they've moved it behind a paywall, but every time I look for it, you can listen to it for free with a free trial or something. And it's one of those things where like, listen to it, then immediately cancel your subscription or whatever you have to do to listen to it. But like, and maybe you can listen to it once without even having to do that. But like, it's really worthwhile. Okay. All right. I got a few more. Okay. Okay. I'm down. I'm enjoying it. All right. So another show that a lot of people saw this year that I want to point you back to if you, and if you haven't seen it, cause everyone's seen it and you're like, ah, it's like Elizabeth Elliot. If she, if, if that person liked it, I don't want to watch it. Don't be that way. Watch the bear. Um, uh, yes. And what's interesting is, is that there are two seasons of the bear. They're very different from each other. They're both really good. In the second season, an episode that has become kind of legend among TV fans called seven fishes. It's really well done. If you want to see family dysfunction portrayed in the most harrowing way possible, watch episode six of season two, <laughs> The Seven Fishes. It's uh, mem memorable. And the character that you like least in that episode, the next episode, episode seven, is about that character. His name is Richie. And the next episode is called, oh gosh, what is it called? John, do you know the name of it? It's called uh, Forks. Forks, that's it. And it's basically about this character. It's set in a restaurant and episode two, season seven, Forks. And it is one of the most eloquent, beautiful shows about when your life is overwhelming you, just polish the forks. Do what the person tells you to do. Do what the person who's acting in your best interest tells you to do. Like, don't ask any questions, just do it. And there's a level of redemption in this, in this particular episode that I have rarely seen in any kind of, you know, film or, or television show. And I just think it's, I, I just recommend it very highly. I cried at the end of it. So, so there's that. I thought so, it was great. So there's one. Similarly, uh, in another television show that was very popular this year called Reservation Dogs, which is about four young people, Native American young people growing up. It's, and it, it's, John, you, you know some of the people that made the show, right? Yeah, I know some people in it and behind the scenes too. I haven't seen a single episode though, and so I, I have to catch up. And you know what? I don't know if this episode will work if you don't know who the characters are. Like if you mm -hmm. just dropped in and watched season three, episode six, you might be lost. I, I, I don't know. I can't predict that. I would kind of say, watch the first episode of the show and see if these people appeal to you and see if their mm -hmm. cadences appeal to you. It's a very distinct show. It's a show about friendship and coming of age. And it's really a show about community. Six episode of season three. There's a young man who's, who's had a little bit of trouble. And the elders of his community basically come 
he's kind of pulling away from everyone. And they go like, get in the truck, kid, you're coming with us. And they take him out to the woods and they reconnect him with who he is and what life's about. And it's called, uh, it's called Frankfurter Sandwich. And okay. uh, yeah, I, I think it'll stand on its own. You can tell me when you check it out, uh, but it, it's really good. And it's, and it's really about when something has happened to us that has separated us from ourselves. How can we help ourselves, or how can we help someone we love reconnect with what really matters to them? Sounds great. So I've given you those three TV shows. I gave you those podcasts, right? Gave you mm -hmm. three podcasts. And the last thing I'll give you is right where we started. You should watch the video of Kristen Bell singing the next right thing, and it won't even be Kristen Bell. You'll see a cartoon of, of Anna from Frozen. Yeah, but it's yeah, so singing. good. It's so yeah. good. This one you can watch in three minutes, so it's an easy one. Yeah, yeah. So that's it. That's what I got for you this year. Like, life is hard. and A lot of us are feeling discouraged. Focus on the things you can control, how you respond to things that are outside your control, what things you pay attention to and what things you don't. And among the things you pay attention to are some really good pieces of art that underscore the same message. Yeah, yeah underscore the same message that in times of trouble, in times of confusion, in times of doubt, and if you don't know what to do about the long-term future, if you don't know what to do about the big picture, do the next right thing that's right in front of you. And uh, in this case, the next right thing to do is to close this podcast. Well, thank you so much, Bart. Yeah. Thank you, John. Thanks for listening to me. We'll, we'll put in the notes everything that you talked about because I think it's useful stuff. Beautiful. All right, so that's it. That's a wrap. And except, do we need to thank some people? We do need to thank some people. I like thanking people. Yeah. All right. You ready? You ready, people? Because I'm gonna. I'm, I'm ready to thank you. I'm ready to thank Michael Wilson. You know, who I actually love. Scott Gillespie, who I'm sure I would love. Jesse Wells. Yeah. Bob Southwell. Yeah. Alexandra Tamposi. Yeah. Another person I love. Timothy Loveridge. John Woolworth. Josh Strider. A long ago guest on this show who is now a supporter of this show. And Sarah Johnson. Who, I know this will shock you, I love. <laughs> I'm shocked by how many people I actually know support on this that podcast. List? That's yeah. nice. Shocked by it. If you ask Marty about the podcast, she'd go like, yeah, I never listen to that podcast. <laughs> she'd go, I hear that guy all the time. I don't want to listen to him. Right. Um, I hear enough of Bart. So I'm, I'm, I'm touched that anybody <laughs> listens to me or us. And I'm especially touched when somebody who actually knows me listens to, to me. It is, it is a joy. And uh, I hope that someday we were, able to, we were able to rig this thing up so that we can have a big live event some retreat somewhere and invite all the people that really like the podcast to come and meet all the other people that really like the podcast. Because there's one thing I know is that you'd all like really like each other. Yeah. 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 I'd love that. We'll do that. We'll do that moving forward. But in the meantime, thanks for supporting the show and for making it possible for us to keep doing it in the coming year. There will be great guests, great guests. We have reached out to them and many of them are coming. There will be great guests. There will be great conversations. And there will be lots of opportunities to humanize ourselves. And uh, on some level, that's what it's all about. Thanks, Bart. This podcast is made possible by supporters of the show on Patreon. Get an exclusive extra episode every month for less than the cost of a cup of coffee at patreon.com slash humanize me. You'll also get a video newsletter from Bart and some extra goodies. Our patrons make this show happen. So please, if you enjoy it, consider joining us. That's patreon.com slash humanize me. Bart's website where you can contact him is bartcampolo.org. And this episode is produced by Katie Johnson-Smith, me, John Wright, and Bart Campolo. Hey, you could be larger than life.